How's it going, guys? Welcome to the Sacred City Life Podcast. This is your host, Pastor Justin Dean. And the Sacred City Life Podcast, if you don't know, it's a podcast about following Jesus in the normal rhythms of life. This is a podcast that is mainly for Sacred City Church and shaping our people um, to really submit more and more of their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to learn how to make disciples, plant churches, and renew our city for the glory of God. Um, but we do know we have some other listeners from other churches and other places in the country, and we welcome you. And if you have any questions, please, you can email me at um, justindean at sacredcitychurch.com. I am refreshed from a four-week vacation to Colorado with my family, feeling good, and um, ready to jump back into the rhythm of trying to get some podcasts out to you guys as often as I can to help you in your walk with Jesus. And um, <clears throat> this year, right now, and the next season, starting this week, we're going to be going through um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're calling it Practicing the Way of Jesus. And um, one of the spots um, in that sermon, Jesus' famous sermon, the most famous sermon that's ever been preached, Jesus says that Christians are to be salt and light, <clears throat> Um, he tells them that they, you know, what good is salt if it's lost its saltiness? And so it's meant to be like a preservative to culture. Um, it's meant to be distinct. It's meant to influence it or change it <clears throat> in some way. He says they're like, uh, um, a city that's set on a hill or, um, the light of the world. And um, let me just read these passages to you in Matthew chapter 5. He says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Then he goes on and says, You are the light of the world. A city on a, set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, what Jesus is getting at here is Christians, <clears throat> in some ways, and excuse me for my voice, <clears throat> I got hurt in uh, <laughs> jiu-jitsu last week, got my uh, Adam's apple crushed a little bit, and so I'm having some uh, vocal difficulties. I apologize for that. Uh, but Jesus is saying the church, Christians, are meant to be distinct from the culture in some way, uh, they're meant to be salt, so a preservative. They're meant to be light as opposed to darkness. Um, but also, they're meant to have an impact or an effect in the culture. You know, salt is meant to preserve. It's not just, you know, like um, when in, in uh, the Quad Cities, we store up salt uh, in a big bin downtown in order to spread that salt all over the, our roads when it starts to snow and it starts to ice because that's, that salt melts the ice, right? So salt is really no good if it just stays in that bin all by itself, but it's meant to be spread out into the city to have an impact on the city, right? <clears throat> on the roads. Well, light is the same thing. What good is um, light off in a corner? We want light to Im infiltrate darkness and drive darkness out, right? So, and then Jesus also in Matthew 28, when he He's leaving his apostles. He says that he's given them a mission to do, right? And they're to go and 
make disciples, teaching them to obey or, you know, baptizing all that, teaching them to obey, that they're meant to impact and affect culture in a way. Now, I just said, a, I just made a big turn there and I want to kind of define my terms. Um, so if, if to be helpful. So <clears throat> we say at Sacred City that every Christian, and, and we uh, take this from Charles Spurgeon, every Christian is a missionary or an imposter, and that Christians and the church is meant to have is meant to be missional. It's meant to live in and among the culture in such a way that people uh, hear the gospel, see good deeds. The culture is impacted, so there's light, there's salt. Something you know, the culture is impacted in an evangelistic way, and. I'm going to use the word again. The culture is changed in some sense. Now, what is culture? Culture is really anything humans create when they get they get together and humans create culture. So it's art. So, you know, what's a part of a culture? Art, movies, music, um, philosophy is a part of, is a cultural, we call it a cultural artifact, something humans make when they get together. Government. Um, ideologies, um, laws, um, all of these things are cultural artifacts. And the, but the question kind of, the question that's been asked for a long time is how is a Christian meant to be salt and light in a culture? How is Christianity meant to relate with culture. And I'm not, I don't have time for it this time, but Richard Niebuhr wrote a very famous book in the late fifties called Christ and culture. And he outlines five ways that Christians have typically related to culture. And there are five very different ways and they each, you know, have their own merit. Um, but typically a church or a denomination will fall within one or two of those categories and that's really going to affect the way they uh, interact with their culture. So um, at Sacred City, we want to be a missional church. We want to be a church with a, what we, I'm using big words here, missional posture. So our church, we want to have the posture of a good missionary to our culture, right? Now, <clears throat> let me break this down. Actually, first, let me go, let's go to, um, no, I'm, I'm going to talk about, I'm just going to do this. Here, here's, if we can make it really simple. I want you to think of two poles and a spectrum between them, okay? <clears throat> On the left, we're going to have what's called syncretism. Syncretism accepts culture in all of its form. It just uncritically accepts culture, okay? In the Democratic Convention on Monday, they had some kind of interfaith worship gathering where they had imams and they had um, Buddhists and they had all of these different faith. Uh, they all kind of, all these people just kind of came together and worshiped spirituality, it was a very nebulous thing. There were no, um, 
Orthodox Christians there. Um, they obviously reject the Word of God. They just kind of, it's just a kind of a, a blind, um, nebulous faith that just kind of welcomes everything, and it just goes along with the whatever's going in the culture, whatever's advancing in the culture. It just kind of uncritically accepts that. Now, really close to that syncretism, the syncretist line, is what we would call mainline liberalism or mainline liberal churches. Churches that, um, if they ever preach the Bible, they preach only the passages they like, right? They preach the passages about loving the poor. They preach the passages about, um, you know, justice and injustice and, uh, you know, pushing back the oppressor. And they they really um, just focus on maybe even creation care and God's love for creation. And so, all they're really doing is they're 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 making religious what the secular culture already values, you know, taking care of the culture and religious pluralism and um, li- quote unquote liberal values. Okay, now that's syncretism. Okay, you just kind of go with the flow. It's on the far left spectrum. Okay, but here's the deal: you go to the far right spectrum, you go all the way to the right pole, and you're going to have what's called sectarianism. Now, sectarians, they see culture, they see themselves as kind of against culture. They see culture as kind of a bad thing, Um, though every church is affected by culture to some extent, because there is no cultureless church sectarians kind of draw a line in the sand somewhere. You know, the Amish have famously, they drew a line in the sand after uh, the buggy. So the the horse-drawn carriage, they accepted because um, that was basically permitted one day of travel outside the community. And then when the automobile was developed, they realized that there were going to be some negative consequences from the automobile that were going to just potentially could destroy their community, destroying homes and destroying the kind of multiple generations in one community that they valued so much. And so they just drew a line in the sand after the horse drawn buggy and said, no more, we're done. And they rejected culture. So they dress from that day, you know, they, they dress the same, they've got the same technology and I think they've advanced, they've added a few things. I think some of them have now added cell phones, like maybe in the house and some things, but, but they really, they really reject culture and they create a sectarian group. So like a little, little pocket of society where we're going to live this way and we're not going to let the culture quote unquote impact us or affect us anymore. Now, believe it or not, towards the right there, you've got a lot of Uh, Christian churches. You go into some of these churches and the music is from, let's say, the 70s, let's say the 80s. Um, You know, you would never hear, you know, a rap beat in that church. You would never hear probably an electric guitar, but maybe they have hymns and they have an organ and they have piano. And they drew a line in the sand at the 70s and they said no more. Maybe uh, they dress a certain way like they did in the 70s, you know. and you've got even, you know, contemporary uh, evangelical churches that really kind of draw a line in the sand when it comes to, to culture, and they're on the, on the more sectarian side. Now, um, think about something as simple as, like, receiving a book like Harry Potter. Syncretism 
just accepts the book completely uncritically, reads it, and maybe even adds it to their faith. Yeah, you know what? Let's start practicing Wic- Wicca. And and we're, I'm a Christian Wiccan, right? Uh, no, you're not. You're confused. <laughs> and you're worshiping idols, and uh, you're, you are a syncretist, okay? Now, think of the sectarians. Hey, here's... Uh, Here's this book called Harry Potter. <gasps> Harry Potter, that's about witchcraft. Reject it outright. Don't receive it. It's from the devil. Now, we want to be somewhere in the middle of syncretism and sectarianism. What we call, what we think we call is the missional church or having a missional posture. And so you've heard me use Harry Potter and I will, um, I've read it. I've enjoyed it. I've critiqued it. I've, I can critique pieces of it. And I also can point to certain th- pieces that, that connect with um, the Bible, that connect with Scripture, that com- connect what we believe is good, right, and true that from, that's revealed to us from Scripture. Now, the missional church, here's what the missional church does. If, this, if syncretists just uncritically accept culture, and sectarian sectarianism just you know rejects culture the missional church tries to redeem culture and when you're redeeming culture what you're doing is the cultural artifacts that the culture produces whether it's philosophy art legal law uh, technology it receives so first off we're going to have a biblical worldview right we're going to let the bible um, instruct us in what is good, right, true, and beautiful. So, and when we do that, we're going to um, look at each piece of cultural artifact. We're going to receive what is good. Now, what does that mean? Receive what is good. That means think about science and scientific discovery. We can receive what is good from scientific discovery because all truth is God's truth. Um, science is never going, if it's accurate, it's never going to reveal to us something um, that is against God because um, God, God is the source of all truth. Now, we can, let's say, receive some of the benefits even if they have incorrect assumptions. Like maybe they're, they're coming from an assumption that the Big Bang did all this thing by accident all, all on its own without God's intervention, without God speaking in their existing. Well, they might have gotten to the right answer in science with the wrong presuppositions. They believe there is no God, right? We can receive some of their findings. We can receive some of their instruction without uncritically accepting everything. Right, and so we're going to receive what is good, and we're going to reject what is unbiblical. We're going to reject what is bad, right? And then in the so that's easy in a sense, receiving what is good, rejecting what is bad, if, as long as you have a biblical worldview. But then there's also pieces in at all culture that's just broken, right? That's just broken. So um, people in our culture are looking for happiness. And they're looking for happiness in all kinds of different ways that are sinful, that are unbiblical. And so we can connect with them, people in our culture, on the search for happiness. And we can say, yeah, we, we get it. You're looking for happiness. And we can say, we know why you're looking for happiness, because you were made for the source of all happy. <laughs> you're made for God himself, right? Uh, but all of these ways that you're looking, they're never going to fulfill you. You're never going to find it because they're not... Um, 
avenues towards the one and true God, which is Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so we, we can redeem what is broken in that, right? Now, the same thing is, um, well, we, you can, so think about that with philosophy. A philosophical argument, um, they can begin in wrong presuppositions, but maybe they're addressing something that's accurate or, or real in the culture, and then maybe they, their prescriptions are ungodly and, and, and off, right? So we can connect with them on, oh, you know what? I think this is pointing to something that's broken in our world, and yet we reject the presuppositions uh, you know, of a godless society or whatever, and we also reject your, your answers because your answers are never going to get there. And, and uh, Marxism is the easiest thing I'm thinking about right now. <clears throat> Marxism ultimately looks at the struggle between classes of people. And we know there, there has always been struggle between, I'm just going to make it really simple, the rich and the poor, right? There's always been a struggle there. Now, Marxism, obviously it's a godless philosophy. It also uh, prescribes the overthrow, the, 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 the poor needs to overthrow the rich, the powerless needs to overthrow the power, which just creates this cycle of power dynamics where the oppressor becomes the oppressed and the oppressed becomes the oppressor. But it doesn't mean that the struggle between the classes isn't real and maybe even a real problem in our society, right? So we can agree, or I'm not fully giving, I'm just saying we can say, okay, I can see they're getting at something there. I'm going to reject their presuppositions and the underlying assumptions. I'm also going to reject, reject their um, prescriptions, right? And I'm going to show the only way to, to really level the playing field is through the gospel of Jesus Christ that spiritually exalts the humble, right? And spiritually um, cuts down the proud. That's the only way that's going to get through that dynamic. So that's just some ways. Now, for those of you who are pushing back on me already in your mind, and you're saying, Justin, Justin, that's a whole lot of talk, but very little scripture. Uh, first off, I appreciate that push pushback because that's an appropriate pushback. But I think two things. One, I don't think Jesus was a sectarian. I don't think Jesus was a syncretist. I think Jesus was a missionary to the culture. Um, <clears throat> when you look at Jesus came to a specific culture. Think about cult, culture is like how we dress. That's part of it, right? How we dress. Jesus didn't show up in a three-piece suit, right? He, to Nazareth, right? Or, or when he preached in the temple. Jesus contextualized himself to the culture that he was in. He came wearing sandals. He came with his long hair. He, more than likely, he came with the robe that he wore. He looked just like the people in his culture. Now, hold on. I know you're pushing back on me. Should we dress like the people in our culture? To an extent, absolutely. The only standards for clothing in, this, in the New Testament is don't be vulgar, right? Don't be vulgar. Uh, don't be too revealing. Uh, be modest. That's it. Be modest. But it doesn't give us a definition of that modesty, like what length should your skirt be, ladies, or... Uh, can a guy work out with his shirt off, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so Jesus contextualized himself to a specific culture. He was a good missionary to his culture. He didn't come looking like some kind of alien or some kind of person from another culture. He came looking like the people he was trying to reach. 
And then Jesus used the language of the people he was trying to reach. And not only the language, he used the philosophical terms. When the the gospel writer John in John 1 says that Jesus is the word, the word he used there was logos. Jesus is the logos. And that was a philosophically loaded term that the the philosophers of the day, the Greek philosophers, believed that the world was structured around the divine order or the divine word. And Jesus picked up on that um, Greek philosophy and he goes, yeah, kind of, but I'm him. (laughs) You know, it's not a concept. It's not just a philosophy. I am the word. I, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And so he's using philosophical terms. Now, did that mean he um, uncritically accepted everything that those Greek philosophers taught? Absolutely not, because Jesus would go on and teach things that were against those philosophies. But he used the terminology of the day. He used philosophical language to reach the philosophers and to reach people who were speaking that language. Okay? So I believe we can use some of those philosophical terms. Now, some of the problems arises we we do need, and I need to do a better job of, when I say a specific word, I need to define that term and what I mean as as I'm using that term. Because... um, I'll just say it like this. When you say one term, Fox News means something by that, and um, and maybe CNN News means something different by that, and maybe a Marxist philosopher means something by that, and a Christian philosopher means something by that. And so one specific example is the, is the term social justice, which is in the Bible, and which I've been saying for a decade at Sacred City, and now there's this emphasis on the Marxist idea of or what the Marxists mean by social justice. And people think I'm meaning that when I'm not meaning that. I'm meaning biblical justice or uh, doing good works and creating a just society and um, removing oppression and, and things like that. So I need to do a better job of defining my terms, okay? <clears throat> now, so I think Jesus was a good missionary to his culture. He didn't... So John, John the Baptist is kind of, in a sense... A little sectarian, right? John the Baptist looked weird. He, you know, he wore weird clothes. He had a weird diet. He's out in the desert. He's yelling and screaming and repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Um, and so you had to go out to see him. It's kind of like this little enclave of like religious zealots. And yet Jesus picks up the same message: repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And yet Jesus doesn't stay out on the outskirts. Jesus goes into the cities. Jesus goes from town to town, from place to place, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, as it says in Matthew, healing the sick, casting out devils, and, uh, of course, preaching the gospel. Um, So Jesus was a good uh, missionary. He connected with the people. And and the people loved him because he he gained a large large following, right? Um, Jesus, honestly, didn't come just yelling about, you know, fire and brimstone the whole time. He came meeting needs, healing people, and preaching about the kingdom of God. Now, another example, so that's Jesus, and I think we should take our missional posture from Jesus. Um, Okay, let's go also, we're going to go to uh, Acts 17, because it's a pretty famous passage, and one that's kind of formative for me. 
Paul the Apostle. Paul was definitely a sectarian, but then he gets saved and converted and then sent to the people that he deemed, uh, uh, you know, less than. And he's in Athens in chapter 17, verse, I don't know, certain 16. He says this. Now, when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So first off, Paul is not a syncretist. When he sees the worship of false gods, whether it be Allah or Buddha or, um, or uh, you know, some kind of weird American, Americanized version of Christianity or prosperity gospel or the worship of idols of power, comfort, money, whatever it is, he was provoked because it was against God. It was against the one God and it was against Jesus Christ. So he's not a syncretist. He's actually seeing the idolatry of a city and being provoked by it. <clears throat> so what does he do? He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Now, that's a key word, reasoning. He's going there and he's going to speak their language. He's going to probably use their terms. He's going to receive what is good and affirm what is good and reject what is bad. And he's going to redeem what is broken. He's going to say, nope, here's where you're right. Here's where you're wrong. And here's where here's where you need to be tweaked. Here's where things, some things need to be fixed. Here's where you need Jesus in order to get what you're really looking for. So he reasons in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day. So he's not just got a big sign and yelling, repent or you're going to hell. He's reasoning <clears throat> in, in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. <clears throat> some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So G, or Paul is engaging controversial philosophical ideas, Epicurean and Stoicism. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? So some of them are making fun of him. Others said he seems to be preaching a foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So he's engaging these philosophies, but it's always coming back to Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was a place where men gathered to debate ideas. And all they did was sit around and debate ideas and philosophize and, and talk theory. And they took him and brought him to the, area, to the Areopagus saying, May we know this new teaching. What is this new teaching that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, I want to see I want you to see his posture. He does not <clears throat> say, "Listen here, you idiot, epicurean, stoic, idol worship morons." Okay? He does not say, "Listen you left-wing idiots or you right-wing idiots." He's not taking an antagonistic posture to the culture. He's not and I'll tell you like some guys on the towards the sectarian side um 
they that's the way they sound in Christianity. They they make fun of everybody. They call everybody flaming heart, social justice warrior, liberal, blah, 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 blah. And those on the left, you know, call everybody, you know, on the, towards the right, you know, Trump worshiping, Trumpian, you know, racist, blah, 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 blah. That's not Paul's posture. Paul takes a missional posture, a missionary posture, a Christian posture, in my opinion, well, like Jesus did. And he is receiving what is good, rejecting what is bad, and trying to redeem what is broken. Look how he says this. Men of Athens, I perceive in every way you are religious. So he's, he's, step, he's kind of encouraging them. I'm glad that you're religious. I'm glad that you realize there is a God. There's a source of all things good. There's something higher than just this world. Look, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God. So, do you see what's going on here? Paul walks into the city, walks in Areopagus. He sees an altar to with a sign on it that says, To the unknown God. And when he sees an altar to an unknown God, instead of saying, These pagan worshiping morons, what a bunch of idiots. Don't they know Jesus is the Christ, the only God to worship, you know, in his in his Father and the Son and the Spirit? He goes, Oh, you know what? I can see these men are like blind men stumbling in the dark, searching. Like he says in Romans 1, that we all know there is a God, right? But we've rejected him. We've rejected him and we've, um, we're idol worshipers. So this is not, he's not freaked out by this. He's not like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that there's an altar to an unknown God right here. Can you believe these stinking pagans? No, he goes, oh, you know what? Oh, this is a good sign. This is a good sign. This means that the, because they're made in the image of God, they have this automatic religion, uh, religious impulse in them, and they're leaning into this impulse, and they're they're worshiping, right? They realize that they're worshiping something, and they, and they realize that they're blind men because they're worshiping an unknown God. And so he says this, quote, back to the scripture, verse 23, what therefore you worship as unknown, this... I proclaim to you, okay, he's redeeming what is broken. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And and he made, so now he's, he's basically telling the biblical gospel here, the story of scripture. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. It is actually not far from each one of us. So he's saying, oh, that altar to an unknown God, let me tell you who that unknown God is. That God is the God of Scripture. That God is the Father of of Jesus. That God is the spirit of the living God. But this is where he's, so he's got a good missionary posture here. One that I think we should, um, we should replicate. He understands the culture that he's, um, speaking into. He understands how these people, he understands scripture, how these people are made. They're made religious. They're made to worship. They're trying to worship, but they're worshiping in wrong ways. He brings a corrective to them and says, here's the God that you don't know about. 
But watch, but this this next stance, this next move by Paul is even more um, missional. He says this, for, verse 28, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, quote, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being, so he's using their terminology here, that God is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Okay, here. He is not a syncretist. Let me show you what he's doing here. He's speaking to them on their own terms. When he said, um, for we are, we are indeed his offspring. Um, he's quoting, he said, you know, when he said some of your own poets, instead of like quoting just scripture in the Old Testament, Paul quoted some statements from pagan Greek writers who were familiar to his audience. And he quotes them with approval. He's saying, you know what? Those guys were right about this. So he's receiving what is good. And he's already and he's rejecting what he's what is bad, and he's trying to redeem what is broken, right? He's not saying by quoting these guys, I agree with everything everything they said. No, no, no. That's why he tells them to repent later. But he's receiving what is good. That first quotation. There's two quotations: "In Him we live and move and have our being," for, and the second one: "For we are indeed His offspring." Um, the first one is a hymn to Zeus by Epimenides of Crete um, in 600 BC. And the words are found just two lines later than the quotation Paul takes from the same poem in Titus 1.12. And the second quotation here is from the poem Phenomena by the Stoic poet Eratus. And so Paul the Apostle is, I think, a good is showing us this missional approach to culture, this missional posture. He's quoting to these Greek philosophers, Greek philosophers, other Greek philosophers. And he's saying, yep, they found their way right here, but here's the deal. He's not a syncretist. He's not just saying, oh yeah, see, all, you know, every, all roads lead to God and everything is the same and, and we can uncritically accept all poets and all philosophers and all religions. No, he, he says, but we must what? God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he is not, you know, the syncretist, Jesus, you know, a church with no gospel, a church with no scripture, a church with no Jesus. Nor, I, I don't think he's a sectarian either, um, saying things in a very harsh way, saying things in a way that the culture can't really understand, calling names, making fun of, opposing stances. No, he is, in his own words later, he becomes all things to all men, by that all means he might save some. And so he, to a, to these philosophers, he's becoming a philosopher. He's quoting guys that they agree with, and, and not uncritically though, and critiquing them in a way that's nuanced, in a way that um, receives what is good, rejects what is bad, and redeems what is broken. And I think... This is what the Church of Jesus Christ needs right now. Um, 
I think it harms the church if their proclamation sounds like Fox News or sounds like CNN News. I think their proclamation should sound like Jesus. And um, and he, you know, offended morally upright conservative religious leaders and he um, graciously forgave and encountered and had relationship with sloppy, um, loose moral, liberal sinners and yet still said, go and sin no more. So there's still the call to repent. And I think that's the key. There is an engagement with culture that doesn't just um, accept everything. And so, but there's also a stance for truth and standing on the word of God and a rejection of what is what goes too far or what is, um, what is unbiblical. And uh, that I think is uh is really helpful for our uh, for our our church right now. So this is why with issues all kind of cultural issues there's going to be you might have other preachers that you listen to, other churches that you follow and their stance on the Black Lives Matter thing is different from ours. Um because they're in a different place on the spectrum between syncretism and sectarianism. Um many churches when, if you poll them, they are 99% Republican and 99% Democrat, um, usually based upon what city they're in and where they're at, but also the, the way they approach culture. And I, um, I think that if you're preaching the gospel, you should be getting people from both sides, um, conservatives and liberals. And I believe we are at Sacred City. And, um, and so we, we want to have a missional posture to our culture. Now, um, it does, doesn't mean that we're, we're going to be light or weak on any of the cultural hot button issues, whether it comes to, um, the sexual revolution, whether it comes to the issues of abortion, whether it comes to the issues of race, racism and, and all these things we're, we are going to seek to listen, to receive what is good reject was bad and to redeem what is broken while staying true um, to the word of God. So that is our goal. Now, um, that's this is my prayer for you as a Christian. It's my prayer for your missional community. Um, and it's my prayer for our church. Now, here's what really kind of frustrates me is that people don't think of themselves as missionaries. Now, almost everyone I talk to um, disapproves of the preachers who stand on the corner and scream horribly offensive things while we're, you know, we're, you're, you're trying to walk in a parade or you're trying to, or, you know, there's a, a race and you've got these guys that say, um, God hates sinners, repent, or you're going to hell, um, you know, these really offensive and not necessarily untrue, right? We're not saying they're untrue, but I'm, a, I'm rejecting the missionary approach. I don't think that's helpful. I don't think, I think you turn more people off than you turn on uh, to the gospel. Um, I think many of us would, 
would agree with that. Maybe all of us uh, would agree with that, that we don't like people yelling at us from the streets and all these things. And yet, that's what we do on Facebook. That's our approach on Facebook. We don't think about winning people on the opposite side. We think about securing our political position or securing our current um, understanding of things. We don't think, what would it take to actually win somebody in the culture? Somebody that already has adopted some of these presuppositions and they see racism everywhere and inequality everywhere. How would I win that person to Jesus Christ? How can I get inside that worldview understand it well enough that I can communicate what is good and true. I can reject what is bad and then I can redeem what is broken. I can tell, show them how their search for justice is actually never going to be fulfilled on this side of heaven without a savior, without a just king that's going to crush all of his enemies because every other oppressed person who gets in power will just become another oppressor. And so I want us to be that kind of missionary. And I want, I don't want us to be saying mean, um, abrasive things in missional community about those liberals or about those conservatives, not even knowing that there's one or two people in our missional community that we're, we're talking about. Like when we say those hurtful, harsh things, we're actually offending them and not and not understanding them and not listening to them and not kind of entering into their worldview and being a good missionary to them, okay? So that's my hope for us um, as a church and that's my hope for us, for you as a missionary. Um, yeah, and I think that's it. I think that's all I've got um, for today. Um, if you've got questions, uh, please... Um, you can email me and uh, I will do my best to address them. But hopefully maybe this um, new taxonomy, maybe it's a new taxonomy for you. Hopefully that will be um, helpful. Now, listen, you can do this. Oh, I'm going to go one more thing. Parents, this is really helpful when you're sitting down watching something with your kids or they've experienced something at school that you can work through this taxonomy. Okay, guys, um, you're watching a movie. Oh, pause it. Boom. Hey, guys, what's good? What's good about this? You know, and they can tell you some good. Okay, well, what's bad? And by bad, again, I mean unbiblical. I mean against a Christian worldview. Um, and then, okay, how does this point to Jesus, right? Or how does this point to the need for Jesus? Um. I'm trying to think off the top of my head because we just did it as a family. We're sitting there watching a, a movie and um, I did this with my kids and I just, I, I, you know, whether it's whatever, any, whatever they're getting at in the storyline, ultimately it's never going to be found in anything other than, than Jesus. And so it's a really helpful um, taxonomy to use with your kids. And so let me use Harry Potter since I already brought it up. Um, Harry Potter, obviously it's got witchcraft and stuff in it, um, but it's, you know, it's magic. You can even use that as, you know, spiritual things. Our world is a bewitched world with demons and with, um, angels. And we, we don't just live in an imminent frame of, of the here and the now there is a spiritual world. And so guess what? Um, Harry Potter is actually more 
real and true than a lot of children's books that I read uh, that it's a disenchanted world, right? That's just the, the here and now uh, of, of just moral lessons, just to be, be a good person. No, it's more than that. There's the spiritual world in Harry Potter that we could say, yeah, that's good, that's real, that's true. Um, and it's, there's good versus evil. And guess what? That's, that's the part of the real story of life. There's good versus evil. And, um, uh, other things that are in there, obviously it's a picture of the gospel. One man has to, one man who's been kind of chosen and marked, uh, has to, has to give up his life to save, uh, the world. Right. And he can only, Uh, He defeats death or Voldemort. He defeats the power of death through his own death and resurrection. Um, It's so cliche, Christianity. It's so cliche, a picture of the gospel. Um, But then obviously there's things in it that are broken and and incorrect and unbiblical. And you can just, you can tweak those things, right? Um, You can bring a a biblical corrective to those things. So that's just one little cultural artifact that you can use the paradigm to receive what's good, reject what's bad, and use it to redeem what's broken or point to how, you know, um, that'll that'll never work because there is no ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ, to finally defeat defeat all evil, right? And expunge the world of all evil and all uh, darkness and all sin. So there's just one example. Now, um, hopefully this was helpful. Again, my goal is to help us be better missionaries to our city uh, because you really it's really hard to preach the gospel effectively to our neighbor or share the gospel effectively with our neighbor until you know who they are, kind of what philosophies they hold, um, what they see wrong with the world, and how they think the world can be fixed. And when you understand that, like Paul did to the Athenians, then you can actually... Um, biblically engage them and um, critically engage their worldview and then show how Jesus is better. So hopefully this is helpful for you guys. Um, I do love you and I'm glad to be back. Um, If you've got any any ideas for the podcast, any encouragement for us, any questions, please send them my way. I do really appreciate hearing your feedback. Um, I love you um, and God bless. I will talk to you soon.